Hi, writers. I'm glad you're here for our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer. Most fiction writers are big readers, and, and I suspect you are too. I'll bet you have this experience as a reader, not, a, not, not as a writer, but as a reader. We pick up a new novel. We are relaxed in a comfortable place, maybe with our feet up, maybe with a pillow. We open the new novel, and what is it we want from that novel? We want the novel to take us away from where we are and to take us to a new place with new people and new things to look at. Maybe somewhere long ago or maybe somewhere in the remote future or to a new city or new country, new puzzles, new experiences. At that moment, when we open a new novel, our mind is empty, ready to be filled as we begin reading. I just love opening a new novel and getting ready for a big, immersive story, and I'll bet you do too. So given that's what readers want, what's our job as writers? Our job is to fill up the reader's mind, to take the reader away. Building up our characters and our settings is a main way we can do so. How do we do that? How do we build up our characters and settings. One of the best ways to learn about writing is to read good writing to see what the writer is doing. I'd like to offer some wonderful examples of authors filling up the reader's mind, offering the reader a new world regarding characters and settings. They do so with details. Uh, Let's talk about character descriptions first. But let me read First, what we authors should not do. I just wrote this character description, and listen to how vapid and uninteresting it is. Marlene was tall, with blonde hair and green eyes, and full lips. (laughs) Pardon me while I yawn. This character description is dull. It's a default description by a writer who hasn't thought much about the character's description and suddenly realizes... Well, I'd better describe her. And she ends up uh, not much more than a blank. Here's a novelist's technique used all the time to make characters believable. Add details. The more information is given about a character, the more the audience will believe in her. Quote, I try to go for the detail that lights up in me like a neon light. That's uh, screenwriter and playwright Spalding Gray. So let's listen to the masters describe their characters. Listen to how they fill up the reader with images. I get excited as a reader and as a writer when I come across an author doing his or her job of filling me up with a description. Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite writers. This is from Neverwhere. Listen to his description of Varney. Varney looked like a bull might look if the bull were to be shaved, dehorned, covered in tattoos, and suffered from complete dental breakdown. Wouldn't it be fun to write that? It's sure fun to read it. Here is uh, Neil Gaiman again, his description of the young lady in the same novel, Neverwhere. The young lady's name is Dor. 
Richard realized that he could not tell what color her eyes were. They were not blue or green or brown or gray. They reminded him of fire opals. There were burning greens and blues and even reds and yellows that vanished and glinted as she moved. Here is uh, Neil Gaiman's description of uh, two villains in the novel, Croup and Vandermeer. Listen to how Neil Gaiman just fills up us readers. They wore black suits, which were slightly, (laughs) slightly greasy, slightly frayed, and even Richard, who counted himself among the sartorially dyslexic, felt there was something odd about the cut of the coats. They were the kind of suits that might have been made by a tailor who, uh, 200 years ago, who had had a modern suit described to him, but had never actually seen one. The lines were wrong, and so were the grace notes. The man in front was a little shorter than Richard. He had lank, greasy hair of an unlikely orange color and a pallid complexion. As Richard opened the door, he smiled widely with teeth that looked like an accident in a graveyard. Aren't these big and wonderful descriptions? They just fill up the reader, uh, fill us up with bold image. Neil Gaiman is doing the work here. Here is uh, Patrick O'Brien in Master and Commander, the title of the novel, the first in his Master and Commander series. He's describing the uh, hero Jack Aubrey. The listener farther to the left was a man of between 20 and 30 whose big form overflowed his seat, leaving only a streak of gilt wood to be seen here and there. He was wearing his best uniform, the the white-lapelled blue coat, white waistcoat, breeches, and stockings of a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, with the silver medal of the Nile in his buttonhole and the deep white cuff of his gold button sleeve beat the time, while his bright blue eyes, staring from what would have been a pink and white face if it had not been so deeply tanned, gazed fixedly at the bow of the first violin. Uh, Then uh, Patrick O'Brien goes on to describe Stephen Matron. A covert glance showed that he was a small, dark, white-faced creature in a rusty black coat, a civilian. It was difficult to tell his age, for not only had he that kind of face that does not give anything away, but he was wearing a wig, a grizzled wig, apparently made of wire and quite devoid of powder. Don't Patrick O'Brien's descriptions give us readers big, vivid images? Here is a description of Margot's from Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon. She was a tall and sturdy girl, just beginning to lengthen and ripen into womanhood. Her thick hair was reddish like Igraine's own, and there were splotches of freckles on her skin. No matter how carefully she soaked it in buttermilk and begged the herb wife for washes and simples for it. Here's a description of Josephine in Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories by Jean Shepard. I kept looking at her sideways 
and every time the street light hit her, I couldn't believe that such a girl had moved into our neighborhood. Her high, chiseled cheekbones, the dark hair trickling from under the stocking cap, the rounded slopes and valleys of her corduroy coat, the faint scent of cabbage, all were beginning to tell on my addled senses. Here's Jean Shepherd again. Here is Jean Shepherd again describing Scott Farkas in the same collection of stories, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. I know that such a thing is anatomically not possible, but Farkas's eye seemed to be of the purest silver gray, totally unblinking and glowing from within with a kind of gem-like hardness. These eyes, set in his narrow, high-cheekboned weasel face, above a sharp, runny nose, have scarred forever the tender psyches of countless pre-adolescents. He was the only kid I ever heard of who rarely smoked cigars, cigarettes, or corn silk. Farkas chewed, apple-cured, red mule-cut plug, in class and out. As a spitter, Farkas unquestionably stands among the all-time greats. During class, he generally used his inkwell as a target, while on the playground, he usually preferred someone else's hair. Here again, by Gene Shepard, is his description of Emil Bumpus. Old Emil Bumpus was kind of the head man. He was about eight feet tall and always walked like he was leaning into a strong wind, with his head hanging down around his overall tops. He must have weighed about 300 pounds, not including the chaw of navy plug, which he must have been born chewing. His neck was so red that at first we thought he always wore some kind of a bandana, but he didn't. He had an Adam's apple that rode up and down the front of his neck like a yo-yo. His hair, which was mud-colored, stuck out in all directions and looked like it had been chopped off here and there with a hedge-trimming shears. And his hands, which hung down to just below his knees, had knuckles the size of pool balls, and there, were u- there was usually a black string bandage around a thumb. His hands were made for hitting things. What a wonderful image from Gene Shepherd. Here is the description of Sonny Corleone in The Godfather. Sonny Corleone was tall for a first-generation American of Italian parentage, almost six feet, and his crop of bushy, curly hair made him look even taller. His face was that of a gross cupid, the features even, but the bow-shaped lips thickly sensual, the dimpled cleft chin in some curious way obscene. He was built as powerfully as a bull, and it was common knowledge that he was so generously endowed by nature that his martyred wife feared the marriage bed as unbelievers once feared the rack. Here is uh, Tom Wolfe's description of Sherman McCoy in Bonfire of the Vanities. Listen to Tom Wolfe build an image. Looking at Sherman McCoy, hunched over like that, and dressed the way he was, in his checked shirt, khaki pants, and leather boating moccasins, you would have never guessed what an imposing figure he usually cut. Still young, 38 years old, tall, 
almost 6'1", terrific posture, terrific to the point of imperious, as imperious as his daddy, the lion of dunning Spongat, a full head of sandy brown hair, a long nose, a prominent chin. He was proud of his chin, the McCoy chin. The lion had it, too. It was a manly chin, a big round chin such as Yale men used to have in those drawings by Gibson and Leyendecker. An aristocratic chin, if you want to know what Sherman thought. He was a Yale man himself. Uh, here's one more. This is Truman Capote's wonderful description of Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's. She was still on the stairs. Now she reached the landing, and the ragbag colors of her boy's hair, tawny streaks, strands of albino blonde and yellow, caught the hall light. It was a warm evening, nearly summer, and she wore a slim, cool, black dress, black sandals, a pearl choker. For all her chic thinness, she had an almost breakfast cereal air of health, a soap and lemon cleanness, a rough pink darkening in the cheeks. Her mouth was large, her nose upturned. A pair of dark glasses blotted out her eyes. It was a face beyond childhood, yet this side of belonging to a woman. I thought her anywhere between sixteen and thirty. As it turned out, she was shy two months of her nineteenth birthday. She was never without dark glasses. She was always well-groomed. There was a consequential good taste in the plainness of her clothes, the blues and grays, and lack of luster that made her herself shine so. Let's take a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. So we readers are sitting on a comfortable couch, a, a Diet Coke on the table, and are reading a novel, and these fabulous characters are created right in front of us. It's the writer doing her work wonderfully, doing her job. Notice all the details. These descriptions fill up the reader, and that should be our goal as writers. We've talked about characters. Now let's turn to settings. It's the same technique regarding settings. The writer filling up the reader with a description of a place. But first, let me offer what we writers shouldn't do. The most boring sentences you'll hear this week, maybe this month. This is what a writer shouldn't do. And I wrote this. Uh, and doing so, I broke two rules, two rules about settings. Here's the setting. The carpet was a tan color, and the print of an ocean scene hung on a wall. The couch pillars were red and yellow. <laughs> this setting description is so bad that I just got stupider when I wrote it. The first rule I broke was putting a scene in a living room. 
and the second was having placed it in a dull living room. Uh, I wrote this description, and there is nothing interesting about it. A lot of us writers don't give our settings much thought until it's time to put our character somewhere, so we think, okay, uh, a living room, I'll have them there. Uh, One of the reasons I'm a writer, and I'll bet it's true with you, is that I love good writing. So let's read some masters regarding settings. Listen to how they fill up the reader. This is J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room, looking out west onto the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and gold, snapdragons and sunflowers and nasturtiums trailing all over the walls and peeping in at the round windows. One morning the hobbits woke to find the large field south of Bilbo's front door covered with ropes and poles for tents and pavilions. A special entrance was cut into the bank leaning, uh, leading to the road, and wide steps and a large white gate were built there. The tents began to go up. There was a specially large pavilion so big that the tree that grew in the field was right inside it. That's uh, Tolkien's description uh what a wonderful place you know i've vis- i have visited that set the shire set in new zealand it's still there just looking like it did in the movie it's a wonderful wonderful place to go to in new zealand here is uh, colin mccullough in the thornbirds describing new zealand yet it was a gentle gracious land beyond the house stretched an undulating plain as green as the emerald in Fiona Cleary's engagement ring, dotted with thousands of creamy bundles, close proximity revealed as sheep. Where the curving hills scalloped the edge of the light blue sky, Mount Egmont soared then thousand, ten thousand feet sloping into the clouds, its sides still white with snow its symmetry so perfect that even those like Frank who saw it every day of their lives never ceased to marvel. Isn't that beautiful? Makes you want to visit New Zealand. Here's Gene Shepard again in Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories. He's describing a restaurant and tavern called the Red Rooster. A giant red neon rooster with a blue neon tail that flicked up and down in the rain set the tone for this glamorous establishment. An aura of undefined sin was always connected with the name Red Rooster. Sly winks, nudgings, and adolescent cackling about what purportedly went on at the rooster made it the in spot for such momentous revelry. The decor ran heavily to red checkered oilcloth table covers and plastic violets, and the musical background was provided by a legendary jukebox that stood a full seven feet high, featuring red and blue cascading waterfalls that gushed endlessly through its voluptuous facade. In its 200-watt operation, it could be felt, if not clearly heard, as far north as Gary, and as far south as Kankakee. A triumph of American aesthetics. What an image. Here is John Grisham 
in his wonderful novel, A Painted House, describing the Latcher's shack. The shack was in a bend of the river, with elms and willows touching the roof and cotton growing almost to the front porch. There was no grass around the house, just a ring of dirt where a horde of little latchers played. I was secretly happy that they lived on the other side of the river. Otherwise, I might have been expected to play with them. The trail to their house was barely wide enough for our truck, and when we rolled to a stop, the porch was already filled with dirty little faces. I had once counted seven latcher kids, but an accurate total was impossible. It was hard to tell the boys from the girls. All had shaggy hair, narrow faces, with the same pale blue eyes, and they were all raggedly clothed. Here again is Neil Gaiman in Neverwhere, where if you, in the novel, if you fall through the cracks in the world, you end up in London below. Richard stood there, alone in the throng, drinking it in. It was pure madness. Of that there was no doubt at all. It was loud and brash and insane, and it was, in many ways, quite wonderful. People argued, haggled, shouted, sang. They hawked and touted their wares and loudly declaimed the superiority of their merchandise. Music was playing, a dozen different kinds of music being played, a dozen different ways on a score of different instruments, most of them improvised, improved improbably. Richard could smell food, all kinds of food. The smells of curries and spices seemed to predominate, with beneath him the smells of grilled meats and mushrooms. Stalls had been set up all throughout the shops, next to or even on counters that during the day had sold perfume or watches or amber or silk scarves. Everybody was buying. Everybody was selling. Richard listened to the market cries as he began to wander through the crowds. Lovely fresh dreams first Class nightmares, we got em. Get your lovely nightmares here. Weapons, arm yourself. Defend your cellar, cave, or hole. You want you want to hit em. We got em. Come on, darling, come on over here. Rubbish, screamed a fat elderly woman in Richard's ear as he passed her malodorous junk. Junk, she continued. Garbage, trash, offal, debris. Come and get it. Nothing whole or undamaged. Crap, tripe, and useless... You know you want it. A man in armor beat a small drum and chanted, Lost property, roll up, roll up, and see for yourself. Lost property, none of your found things here. Everything guaranteed, properly lost. One stall was piled high with bottles, full bottles and empty bottles of every shape and every size, from bottles of booze to one huge glimmering bottle that could have contained nothing but a captive genie, Another sold lamps with candles made of many kinds of wax and tallow. A man thrust what appeared to be a child's severed hand, clutching a candle toward him as he passed, muttering, Hand of glory, sir, send him up the wooden hill to Bedfordshire, guaranteed to work. He passed a stall selling glittering gold and silver jewelry, another selling jewelry made from what looked like the valves and wires of antique radios. There were stalls that sold every manner of book and magazine, others that sold clothes, old clothes, patched and mended and made strange, several tattooists, 
a dentist chair with a hand-operated manual drill, with a line of miserable people standing beside him waiting to have their teeth pulled or filled by a young man who seemed to to be having altogether too good a time, a bent old man selling unlikely things that might have been hats and might have been modern art, something that looked very much like a portable shower facility, even a blacksmith. These writers have done their jobs. They've taken us readers out of our living rooms and planted us in a f- fantastic new places. They've filled us readers up. That's just what we writers should do. One of the ways that I get excited about writing is to read strong and vivid descriptions by masterful writers such as these of characters and settings. It's a strong way for us writers to learn and a strong way to get us enthused about the craft of writing fiction. We're at the end of this episode. If you'd like to send me a message, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Hope to see you next time. Until then, this is Jim Thayer, and please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>